This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Well, good morning. Good morning and greetings to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Jeff, and it's my joy to be one of the pastors here at Christ Church. If you have your Bibles with you, please open in them to the book of Judges. And if you need a Bible, we'd love to be able to give one to you. You can just shoot your hand up in the air. We have people in the back who would be happy to send one your way. So just put your hand up. we make sure everyone has a copy of God's Word in front of them. Thank you so much for doing that. We are in a series in this book of Judges. And this book is a pretty wild book. Uh, but God can meet us in some profound ways, even in the wild. This morning we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And as we get ready to read God's word, I wonder, when was the last time you felt anxious? When was the last time you felt alone? When was the last time you felt afraid? Maybe you are coming into the worship gathering this morning and one of those things might characterize the state of your heart even in this moment. Or maybe everything is okay right now, but you certainly know what those feelings are like. We can all have times where we feel anxious, alone, and afraid. Those can be consistent companions on this journey of life. We all can be full of insecurities in various ways. As we come to Judges chapter 6, we're going to meet a man who is full of insecurities. He's a man who is anxious. He's a man who's alone. And he's a man who is afraid. And God meets him in that place. And so we're going to read this whole chapter this morning, and it's long, so I'm going to ask you to stick with me and please read along. It is long. But God's word is good, God's word is true, and God's word is life. And so actually the reading of God's word is the most important part of the preaching moment. And so let's turn our attention and hear what God wants to say to us through his word this morning. Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of East would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you've not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abzerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat and the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where? Are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt 
But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the Midian. Do I not send you? And he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terabeth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of a staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abrazites. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the ashtoreth that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, which stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the ashtoreth that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family... And the men of the town, to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. And the ashtoreth beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the ashtoreth beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerobel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had broken down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Marekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abazirites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they too were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphali, and they went out to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the, all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with the water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Praise God for his holy word. Let's bow our heads now. And to have a time of prayer between us and the Lord, asking that you would speak to us through his words. Just have a prayer between you and God right now, and ask him to speak to you. And now if you'd be so kind, please pray for me. That in my weakness, I will be strengthened to preach God's word to you in a way that's helpful and faithful and glorifying to him.
God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. Give us eyes to see what you want to show us. And give us open hearts to receive what you want to give to us. We pray this, that our joy in you might be increased. And so that your glory from us might be maximized. Praise things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So in this chapter where we meet a fearful man, we first start by meeting a fearful people. This chapter opens by describing what are perhaps the worst oppressors that Israel had faced so far in this book. They had been other people's slaves before, but here they're being forced to leave their very homes. These enemies, the Midianites, had combined forces with the Amalekites and the people of the east, and they were just laying waste to Israel. They were taking their crops and their cattle. They were completely destroying their land. You think you have some problems with your neighbors. <laughs> Imagine if your neighbor could come into your house and claim it as their own. They could take all your cars and your belongings and empty your savings account, and there's nothing that you could do about it. That's the situation that the Israelites find themselves in. And so we read in verse 6, and, and again in verse 7, that they're in distress. They're in distress and they are crying out to God. And God answers their cry. But not by first sending them a deliverer. He does not answer their cry by sending them one of these judges that we've met so far in this book. He does not answer their cry by first raising up a rescuer to come take them out of their troubles. No, did you catch who the first person was that God sent? What well, we see in verse 8 to the first person was that God sent. It says, and the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. These people are being oppressed. They're crying out for deliverance. But instead of God sending a warrior... God sends a word. They don't get deliverance. They get a sermon. And I have to wonder if they were probably not too happy about that. I mean, this is like being stranded on the side of the road, and you're calling AAA for insistence, but instead of getting a tow truck sent your way, they email you a pamphlet on how to be a better driver. The Israelites didn't think they needed a word. They thought they needed a warrior. But what God is doing by sending them a prophet is he is showing them what their true problem really is. Oh, he is meeting them in their distress. He's just showing them what their distress actually was. Their, their biggest problem was not the Midianites. Their biggest problem was not the situation that they were in. Their biggest problem was not situational. It was relational. Because God says in verse 10, they had not been obeying his voice. They had not been obeying his voice. It was not that they had stopped keeping some arbitrary rules. No, their problem was that they weren't listening to God. They weren't listening to what God had told them to do, which was a relational problem between them and the Lord. Because when we don't listen to someone, that shows that we don't care about someone. When I get on an airplane, the first thing I do when I sit down in my seat is I put my headphones in. And to be honest, I do not listen to what the flight attendant has to say. Not because I don't care about them as a person. I'm sure they're wonderful people. I just don't really care about what they have to say. Like, I, I know I should listen to these safety instructions. I know they're actually probably important for my benefit. But I just really don't care. I want to kind of settle in and just get in whatever headspace I need to get in because I don't like flying in order to get to my destination. Right? I don't listen because I don't care. But when my wife asks me to do something, I do want to listen to her because I do care about her. I love her and I want to please her, and so I try to listen to her voice. Or at least I do the best I can. I'm still a work in progress, to be sure. We listen to those that we care about. And so when we don't listen to God, when we don't do what God says, that's not just breaking some rules, it's actually breaking his heart. It's showing that we don't care about him. It's a relational problem. And that's what these people are experiencing. They've not been listening to God, but verse 10 says that instead they've been fearing these other gods. That word fear does not mean they were afraid, but it's fear in the sense of showing respect, 
of showing appreciation, of expressing reverence. And they did this not because it was fun to go worship other statues. No, they worshiped the statues of these false gods because they wanted what those false gods promised to give them. And so when the rain didn't come when they wanted it to come and bring the harvest like they wanted it to come, instead of trusting God to provide for all their needs, instead of trusting God to take care of them, they tried to take things into their own control and they went and worshiped the rain god. They went and, they went and worshiped the god of the harvest. You see, their idolatry was birthed from a heart that didn't think God was enough. And for us, while we probably don't have statues that we worship, we can have that same heart of idolatry, can't we? How often there are things that we can turn to when we feel like God just isn't enough. See, idolatry is born from that place. Idolatry is born from the place of thinking, well, when I get this, or when I have this, when I achieve this, then I'll be happy. An idol is anything that we put in the center of our lives and say, this is what we need in order to have enough. This is what we need in order to be enough. But idolatry will always lead to insecurity. Idolatry will always lead to insecurity because our hearts were made by God to only be truly satisfied in God. He's the only one who can be at the center of our lives and keep the rest of our lives in balance and in harmony and in peace. And so whenever we put something else in his place, whenever we engage in idolatry, we're putting something in the center that cannot hold us. And so we'll always feel uneasy. We'll always feel insecure. Because it doesn't give us, indeed it can't give us, what we're searching for that can only be found in God himself. And so chase the idol of perfect kids and you'll always be insecure. Because your well-being will be tied up with their well-being. You'll always be scared for them instead of trusting God with them. Chase the idol of your job and you'll always be insecure because there'll always be more hours, there'll always be more opportunities, there'll always be more things that you could be doing. Chase the idol of people's affirmation and you'll always be insecure as you wonder, but what do they really think about me? I think in many ways we can discern what the idols are that we are worshiping by considering what it is that makes us afraid. Our insecurities reveal to us our idolatries. See, fear danger, you're probably worshiping safety and comfort. Fear financial insecurity, and you're probably worshiping wealth. Fear other people's opinions, and you're probably worshiping approval. Our insecurities reveal to us our idolatries. But I love how the Lord deals with his idolatrous people here. I love how he meets them in this place. He corrects them. He says, you have not listened to me. He gives them a rebuke, but he also gives them a reminder. He says, I am your redeemer. I am the one who rescued you. He doesn't just bring them a rebuke. He reminds them of their redemption. He reminds them of how they've been living in slavery in Egypt. He reminds them of how they had been hopeless and helpless and oppressed, lost with no way to go and no ability to save themselves, and how he came and how he saved them from the hands of their enemies. And he not only reminds them of their redemption, he reminds them of his name. He reminds them of why he redeemed them. He redeemed them because he is the Lord their God. And that word Lord, as you see in your Bibles, is in all caps. Which means this is the name of God that refers to his personal and intimate name. This is the name of God, Yahweh. The name that the people of Israel thought was too holy to put even down on paper. And so the reason it's in all caps is because we don't actually know fully how it is spelled. This is the name that shows that God is not just creator, that God is not just all-powerful. This is the name that reminds God's people that he is the God who sees you. He's the God who knows you. He's the God who cares about you. He's the God who loves 
you. This is the way that God identifies himself, not just as God in general, but as our God. As our God who loves us and who wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And so we need to see what God is doing here. He is reminding the people of his redemption and his redemption that came from his heart of personal love. And he's contrasting his love with these false gods. He's saying these false gods, they don't love you. They won't do anything for you. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. And remember my love. And there's a reason that this section comes before we see how God interacts with Gideon. Because as we get into Gideon and as we see how Gideon is so anxious and so alone and so afraid, what we're going to see is God again and again and again showing Gideon his great love for Gideon. And making a mistake, it is God who is showing his love for Gideon. Verse 11 says, it's the angel of the Lord who came to meet with Gideon. But then when this being speaks in verses 14 and 16, look at it. Both times it says, and then the Lord said. So this angel is both a messenger of God, and yet also somehow God himself at the same time. And so we're meant to think, like, how is that possible? Well, it's a mystery in the Old Testament, but it's revealed to us in the New Testament. Because this is exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who both speaks the word of God and is himself the word of God. Jesus is the one who is both the messenger of the Lord and is also the Lord. And so this is what theologians would call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate so before Jesus came and was born and put on human flesh, that's his incarnation, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Which also makes sense about why the prophet was speaking about Israel's redemption from Egypt. Because that loving act of redemption was a foreshadowing of Jesus. And the great love of God revealed through the redemption that he accomplished for us on the cross. And so here's the big idea of this text. Here's where all this is going. And as we go through this the rest of this morning, here's why I hope God just impress upon our hearts. Here's the big idea of this text. When we feel anxious, alone, and afraid, we need to remember the Redeemer's love. When we feel anxious, alone, and afraid, we need to remember not just a, a God. No, we need to remember a Redeemer. And not just a redeemer, we need to remember a loving redeemer. When we feel anxious, alone, and afraid, what we need more than anything is not a situational change, it's a relational change. We need to remember that there's a redeemer who loves us. And so there are four ways that we see the redeemer's love as we go through the story of Gideon. Four ways that we see the redeemer's love for Gideon that is meant to show to us the redeemer's love for us. First, the Redeemer's love gives us a new identity. The Redeemer's love gives us a new identity. We first meet Gideon as he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, just in case you haven't threshed wheat in a long time, let me explain to you the process of how that would normally go. The way that you would thresh wheat is you would actually go up high on a mound, usually on a hill, where there was a lot of wind, and you'd throw the wheat up into the air so that the wind could take away the chaff, the light stuff that you didn't want, and the heavy stuff, the actual grain, would fall to the ground. And so basically, where you would thresh wheat is the exact opposite of where Gideon is doing it. Gideon's threshing it in a wine press, which a wine press would not be up on a high mountain where the elements could mess with all the grapes and what you were doing there. No, a wine press would be in the cool of a cave. And so Gideon is threshing wheat in a place that was honestly a terrible place to thresh wheat because there's not much wind going on underground. And so why is Gideon doing this? Well, we're told why in verse 11. It says he was doing this to hide it from the Midianites. And that phrase, hide it, could also be translated as hide himself. He, he is down in this cave trying to thresh some wheat, a nearly impossible task in such a place because he is scared out of his mind of the Midianites. And he's scared for good reason. But what we need to see here is that Gideon was not some revolutionary. 
He's not some like rebel just looking for the right cause. He's not a brave man. This is no Superman that's being set up for us. This is no Batman. This is not even Robin. Gideon is scared. Gideon is hiding. Gideon is alone and by himself. And yet how does God meet him in that place? What does God say to this scared man? He says in verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord gives him a new identity. The Lord's saying, you might feel weak, but I'm going to call you mighty. You might be scared, but I'm going to say you have valor. And this is not God just, you know, giving Gideon some positive self-affirmation because he sees the good in Gideon. No, Gideon's done nothing to deserve being called a mighty man of valor at this point. He's done nothing to deserve God identifying him in such a way. But God was not identifying Gideon based on what he had done, but instead God was identifying him based on who God was going to make him to be. You see, before God gives Gideon a calling, God gives him a new identity. Because it's our identity in God that's meant to fuel our activity for God. God wants us to be able to do what he's called us to do by understanding who he says that we are in him. We start not with what we do. We start first with who God says we are. But Satan loves to turn this around. Satan loves to turn that on the exact head. Satan wants us to find our identity in what we do, to find our identity in our activity, because he knows that we will inevitably fail at the things that we try because we are imperfect people. And so Satan loves to have us find our identity in what we do because then he can say, see, I knew you'd be a failure. See, you are a coward. See, you are faithless. See, you are sinful. And these identities can so easily get traction in our lives because the reality is they are based on something that is true. We can fail. We can be cowards. We can be faithless. We can sin. And so Satan wants to take what we do and make us think that that is who we are. And as we think that that is who we are, we'll get just so caught up in anxiety. And then we'll look around at everyone else who just seems to be doing so much better than us. And we'll feel so alone. You can tell me how many times I meet with someone. They say, man, I come to church and it's so hard because I feel like I'm the only one who struggles. What they don't understand is they're the 10th person who's told me that this week. But we come in and we're so caught up in our own anxieties, we're so caught up in our own stuff that we think we're the only one who's going through stuff. We're the only one who doesn't have it together. And so when we feel anxious, we often at the same time can feel very alone. And then we become worried that God's going to judge us. We become worried that God's finally fed up with us. We become worried that God's finally had enough of us, and so we're afraid. Satan loves to have us find our identity in what we do. Because he wants to make us feel anxious, alone, and afraid. But God comes, and in the Redeemer's love, he gives us a new identity. God comes, and for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, where Satan says failure, God says in Christ you are forgiven. Where Satan says you're a disgrace, God says in Christ there's more grace. Where Satan says you're a lost cause, God says, in Christ, you're a chosen child. See, trying to find an identity in what we do will always make us feel anxious, alone, and afraid because our doing is always inconsistent at best. But when our identity is found not in what we do, but in who God says we are, that's how we can start to experience his peace. And that's how we can be positioned to do what God actually wants us to do. In order to step out into the calling that God has for us, we need to believe about what God says about us and who we are in Him. See, the way you can tell the difference between God's voice and Satan's voice is that Satan starts with what we do and says that's just who you are. But God starts with who we are in Him. And then says, so here's what I want you to do. We live out God's calling in our lives by believing in who God says we are about him. The Redeemer's love gives us a new identity. Number two, the Redeemer's love promises his presence. 
The Redeemer's love promises his presence. Gideon hears God call him a mighty man of valor, and he's still not so sure about this. And so he says in verse 15, um, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Uh, Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Translation, I can't do it. Translation, this is too much for me. And notice what God does. God doesn't say, yes, you can. Believe in yourself. You just need to have a better self-esteem. No, God does not speak to him about positive self-affirmation. No, God does not direct Gideon back into looking at himself. No, what does God do? God says in verse 16, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. He doesn't direct Gideon to look at himself. He directs Gideon to look to the Lord. And then he leads Gideon through a process where Gideon builds this altar and the presence, uh, and the angel of the Lord touches it and sets it on fire. And that's when Gideon realizes that he's with God because only God can consume sacrifices on his altar. And when Gideon realizes that he's in the presence of God, he's terrified because he says, Alas, O Lord, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Translation, I'm in trouble because I've seen God. And when sinful people realize that they're in the presence of a holy God, the natural response is for us to say, I should be obliterated. No one can see the face of God and live. But watch what the Lord does in verse 23. The Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Friends, this is grace. This is grace. This is Gideon getting not what he deserves, but instead God being good to him despite what he deserves. God is making peace with Gideon by grace. How is that possible? Well, we see how that is possible as this is pointing forward to the one who is going to come and embody the grace of God that makes peace with God and us. What was announced at Jesus' birth by the angels? They said, Peace be unto you. Why? Because in Jesus, God's peace had come to earth. Because for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, we do not have to fear being judged by God. But because Jesus was judged for us on the cross, because he stood in our place, and because he took what we deserve, our sins are now washed clean, and we are welcomed before the holy God in peace We sinful people are welcomed before the holy God. We don't have to say, alas, I deserve to die. No, we can say that the Lord is my peace. Why? Ephesians 2.14, because Jesus himself is our peace. The holy God is with us. He can be with us. The only way the holy God can be with us. The only way the holy God can be with us, sinful people, is because Jesus has washed us clean. So if you're here today and you have faith in Christ, you need to know that you are never alone. You are never alone. No matter how alone you might feel at times, you are never alone. God is always with you. And that is really God's one-sentence answer to every fear every insecurity, every anxiety that we face. This is his one-sentence answer. But I will be with you. But I will be with you. You're afraid to go into that surgery? But I'll be with you. You're afraid to go into that new job? But I will be with you. You're afraid to do that difficult task? But I'll be with you. You're afraid to share the gospel with someone, but I'll be with you. You're dealing with a problem in your home, but I will be with you. You know you need to stand up for what is right, and it might come at a personal cost, but I will be with you. Listen, if you read about almost any secular article that wants to talk about overcoming your fears, it will always talk about how you need to learn how to control your thoughts. And you learn how to control your thoughts and stop thinking about these things that scare you. But God's peace comes in a far different 
way. God's peace does not come from us learning to close our eyes to things that make us afraid. No, God's peace comes to us by us learning how to open our eyes and see the presence of God who is with us. The Redeemer's love gives us a new identity. And the Redeemer's love promises to us God's presence. And point number three, the Redeemer's love wants us to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. The Redeemer's love wants us to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. Gideon has this encounter with God, but God's not ready to send him out to battle yet. There are some things in Gideon's home that he needs to take care of first. You see, Gideon's own family had these false idols that they put up. And so God tells Gideon to take care of his own house before he sends him out to the battlefield to take care of Israel's oppressors. Verse 27 says that Gideon was afraid to do so. He, he says he's afraid of his family, so he goes at night. For some, family can be a very fearful place. Our family knows us best, and so sometimes they can be ones we fear the most because they know how to hit us where we hurt. Really? You're going to take down that idol? Really? You're going to stop doing that? Who do you think you are? You were just worshiping that thing yesterday. Our family is usually best positioned to bring up our past and use it to paralyze us in the present. Gideon's afraid of his family, but even though reluctantly, he still is obedient to God. He just goes at night. And so despite his fear, Gideon does what God says. And he actually ends up being pleasantly surprised by his father's response. Because when the people of town come out and they're like, hey, Joash, your son, Gideon, he done messed up. You know, Baal's going to get angry with us because Gideon took down a statue. Gideon's dad, Joash, is like, if Baal's really a god, then let Baal fight his own battles. Let Baal contend for himself. And so Gideon actually ends up getting this nickname. Let Baal contend against him. And so think about what this means. That means that at this point on, every day that Gideon was alive, every day that Gideon didn't die, was proof that Baal can't do anything. It was proof of the powerlessness of this false god. And so Gideon's timid obedience led to God's word actually becoming true about him. Gideon did become known as a mighty man of valor, but it didn't start in the battlefield, it started in his own home. See, before God works through us, he wants to do a work in us. Before God does work through us, he wants to do a work in us. It can be so easy to step outside our home and do all these things that look wonderful to the Lord, but what's really going on in our own hearts? What's really going on in those private places of our lives? How often we want God to take care of things that are out there, but we want him to stay away from what's in here. And so we'll pray prayers like, God, please go fight this battle for me. God, please make this hard thing stop. And God's like, yeah, you know, I'll get to that. What's going on in your own life? Well, Lord, I didn't want you to do work in me. I just wanted you to work some things out for me. But listen, friends, God doesn't want to share our hearts. He doesn't want to be one God out of many that we're living for. He's not cheap like that. He's too much of a God to settle for being your side hustle. He wants all of us. He wants all our hearts. And he doesn't want to share. But how often we love him when it's convenient for us, but not when it calls for a commitment from us. And so trouble comes into our lives, and we ask, God, please work this out. And God says, okay, but don't you want to work this out? See, God doesn't want to share us. Because God knows in his love, God knows in his love, that until Jesus is our all, nothing will ever satisfy us. Until Jesus is our desire, our desires will never be met. Until Jesus is our satisfaction, we'll never find satisfaction. Until Jesus is enough, we'll never have enough. And so in his love for us, 
Because God does not want us living with things that will never satisfy us. He loves us too much for that. And his love for us, God wants to reveal to us the things that are stealing away our love for him and causing so much insecurity in our lives. You see, where there is God, there is peace. And so where there is insecurity, that means that is where he is not. But there's something or someone else that we're worshiping. There's an idol that has set up its home in our hearts. And so what are the things that can make you feel anxious? When are the times when you can feel so alone? What are the situations in which you are the most afraid? How you answer those questions might be revealing to you some idols that you have set up in your heart. And God loves you so much that he does not want you to continue to go through life shackled to the worship of a false idol that will never give you the peace that you so desperately want. He loves you so much that he wants to reveal our idolatries to us so that he can rescue us from them, so that we can break down them like Gideon did here, so that we can break them down, and in the place where they once stood, God can come in. I love that. The Gideon breaks down the altar a bell, and God says, I want you to build an altar for me in that exact same place. He's not just saying get rid of these things. He's not just saying say no to these things. He's saying, yes, empty your life of these things so that you can be more filled with me. Say no to these things so that you can say yes to more of me. God only reveals what's wrong in us because he loves us and he wants us to experience more of him. The Redeemer's love wants us to be satisfied in him and him alone because in his love he knows that only he can satisfy us. And point number four, the final thing, the way we see the Redeemer's love here in the story of Gideon, is the Redeemer's love asks us to trust and obey. It asks us to trust and obey. Gideon gets this word from God that he needs to go fight the battle. And he goes and he sounds a trumpet and says, all right, people, let's go. Let's go fight this battle. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm expecting at that point, like, the next thing is Gideon's going to go and fight. And, like, we're going to see this battle take place. Right? Gideon got the word from God. And now he's finally ready to go obey God. He sounds the trumpet. He's ready. That's not what happens. Gideon gets ready. He's ready to go. All the people are there. And then Gideon gets some cold feet. Before he steps out into battle, he's like, uh, but God, uh, time out, real quick. Um, I just want to make sure that it really is you who's telling me to do this. Like, I know you did the whole burnt altar thing, and I said that was you, but like, that was yesterday. And so, you know, um, short-term memory loss, I, I, need, I need some more help. Like, like, and he does this whole fleece thing. And he puts out a fleece and says, okay, I want you to make it, you know, rain only on the fleece. Everything else is dry. And then that happens, right? He wakes up, like this thing is soaking wet. He's like, okay, wow, it's amazing. Um, God, don't get angry with me. Which, like, I, I love that he says don't get angry with me because it shows that, like, he knows that, like, what he's doing is ridiculous. You know? God, don't get angry with me, but, like, I just want to ask you one more time. This time, um, make, it, make it rain all around and have the fleece be dry. He sets, he sets up these things. And, 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 and I think sometimes Christians, we read this and we're like, okay, so this is how we discern God's will. We just have to find the right fleece. Like, we we got to put God through all this test and like, you know, if God does this, then we know it's actually him. And so we, we put out, people even talk about this. Yeah, I'm just putting out my fleece, putting out my fleece, waiting on the Lord. Um, friends, you know, I mean, I, before I say it's wrong, I want to say it's actually something I've done as well, just to be honest with you. So like, 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 I think that we, you know, we can all do this. I've done it sometimes. I remember in high school one time, I was like, all right, Lord, if there's this girl that you want me to talk to, and it's really from you, I'm trying to be all spiritual, have a flock of geese fly overhead. And they did. The flock of geese came and flew overhead. And then one of them, no joke, pooped on me. And so I'm like, Lord, how am I supposed to interpret that? Like, like, what, like what, what kind of sign are you showing me here? What am I supposed to do with goose poop? Well, what I should do with that is I should read God's word, which says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and what Jesus also quotes in the desert to Satan, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. If we read this and we think this means that we're to put out a fleece, then we're actually totally missing the point. The point is that Gideon shouldn't have needed a fleece. He already had God's word. He didn't need God to give him more than he already had. He just needed to be obedient to do what God had told him to do. This putting out a fleece is Gideon still being very, very afraid. And yet, don't miss this. God's still not giving up on Gideon. Even though Gideon is literally breaking God's word and putting the Lord his God to the test like he's not supposed to, even in his sin, God is meeting him in that place with his grace. God's like, okay, I'm going to meet you here. And God does the whole fleece thing. Not once. (laughs) He does it twice. His mercies are new every morning. Such is God's love for Gideon that he gives Gideon the assurance that Gideon shouldn't have needed, but the assurance that God still wanted to give him. And such is God's love for us that he wants to give the assurance of his love to us as well. He gives the assurance of his love to us even though we don't have a lamb's fleece. But friends, don't miss this. We do have a lamb. We have Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who went to the cross where all of God's judgment for sin was poured out on him and soaked him so that not a drop would fall on us. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, showing showing that even though the water of death falls on everyone, It can't touch Jesus. And so Jesus is both the true and better wet fleece that took God's judgment, and he is the true and better dry fleece that can't be soaked by death. And so in Jesus, we have even more reason than Gideon to trust and obey what God tells us to do, even when what God says is scary. Gideon started this chapter fearing the Midianites. Now as he's getting ready to battle, what's he afraid of? He's afraid of what God had told him to do. Listen, the world can be scary, but also God's word can be scary. What God tells us to do can be scary. I mean, God's commands, listen, they're good, they're right, they're life, and following them will lead to our thriving. But they can be scary because God tells us to forgive others as we've been forgiven by him. But it can be scary to forgive people who have wronged us. It can be far easier to hold on to our hurt. God tells us in his word that we are to confess our sins one to another so that we can pray for each other, encourage each other, and help each other follow the Lord. But you know what? Confession can be scary. It can be far easier to stay silent Because we're terrified of what people might think of us if we open up what's really going on in us. It can be scary to do what God says and step out and share our faith about Jesus with our coworkers. It can be scary to invite a neighbor to church. It can be scary to stand up against peer pressure. When everything is, you know, everyone around you doing something that's displeasing God, it can be scary to be like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. It can be scary to be like, I might get fired from my job because I can't affirm this thing that God says is wrong. Jesus said we need to count the cost of following him, which means there will be a cost. Listen, friends, if there's never been a cost to your faith, if it's never been hard or scary for you to follow God, then that might be because you aren't actually listening to what God has told you to do. It can be terrifying to lay down our life, to release our control, to let go of our safety, to let go of our feelings, to let go even of our natural desires and be like, okay, God, here's my life. You tell me what to do. That's a terrifying prayer, but that's exactly what Jesus asked us to pray. That's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. He says, if you seek to find your life, you'll lose it, but you are to lose your life for my sakes that you might find it. God wants us to lay down everything about ourselves so that he can define all of who we are, and that's a terrifying thing. But here's how we can do it. We step in and we trust God, 
and we give him control of our lives. We lay down our lives for him. Why? Because he's the one who laid down his life for us. The God who asks us to give him everything is the God who laid down everything for us. Dying the death that we deserve on the cross. Taking hell in our place to prove that he loves us. And that he always wants what is best for us. And so friends, when we are anxious, we feel alone, when we are afraid, whether that's coming from scary things that are going on in your world, or scary things that you know God is asking you to do in his word. And whatever we fear, we need to remember the Redeemer's love. His love that gives us a new identity in Christ. His love that promises God's presence to us in Christ. His love that wants us to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. And His love that invites us to trust and obey what He says because He knows what is best and He wants what is best for us. Jesus proves that. And so I'm going to close with this story to kind of bring all this together and hopefully make this, this plain, what God is saying to us. I'm not sure if this is actually a true story or not, but I sure hope it is. Years ago, there was a ship that got caught in a terrible storm. Its communications were knocked out, and its navigational system was destroyed. They were lost at sea with no way to call out and ask for help. But the Coast Guard had been tracking their journey. And they knew they were not far from a safe harbor. And so they called over to that harbor and asked them, hey, tell everyone in the surrounding area to turn off all their lights and you turn on every light that you have in that harbor. And do that so that the boat can see the light and find its way home. And it did. And the whole crew was saved. Friends, I say that story to say this. There are times in our life where we can feel lost at sea. There can be times in life we are navigating things that seem so scary, waters of anxiety and loneliness and fear. But friends, God has given us a light by which we can navigate to safe harbors. He has given us the light of the Redeemer's love. And so how we are to navigate the scary things of this life is we are to look to the light of His love and let His love be what guides us and keep us going in the direction that He wants us to go all the way until he brings us home safe to be with him forever friends when you feel anxious alone and afraid remember the redeemer's love let's bow our heads in a word of prayer